Good morning, everyone. Good morning. It's nice to see people here today. As I was leaving downtown yesterday, uh, after finishing my shift where I work, I noticed it was a slow day. And as I walked out into downtown, I stood in the middle of Beaver Avenue for almost a minute. There were no cars. And then I walked down Pew Street to my car, and usually it's lined with cars on the side, people going to downtown for various activities. My car was the only one there for blocks. Where is everybody? Is there something going on that I don't know about? Um, should I be somewhere other than I am? No, but I thought I should. Um, so thank you for being here uh, on this Sunday. This morning, I want to talk about chanting. Um, and actually, I want to just say some things inspired by what our root teacher, Coben, had to say about chanting. And this will probably be at least my last talk in our ongoing series on our root teacher and lineage founder, Kobun Chino Otagawa Roshi. What comes next, I have no idea. But um, probably take a break from Kobun for a little while. We do a bit of chanting here at Oan during our Sunday service. And after I wrote that, I started wondering if it was correct to say that what we do is chanting. A lot of times what we do is we read a poem or a sutra together. We do what you might call recitation, not so much chanting. Although today we did chanting, um, this kind of monotone, sometimes sprinting, sometimes crawling, with bells and makugio, well done Daigen for hitting the fish repeatedly, but kindly too, of a canonical text, sometimes in Sino-Japanese. I really like doing this as a practice. Chanting is a big part of my practice, but we don't do so much of it here. And I don't know why. Um, and it's okay that we don't. Every center is different. Everyone's practice is different. I remember when I first started practicing, I found the practice of chanting very intimidating. Um, it wasn't like anything I had experienced growing up in a largely Christian household where you go. And I was part of the group of people that when they went to church, they went to the rock band church. It had like the laser light show and the smoke machine and the drummer, and it was very hip. Um, and that was something that I was familiar with from the kind of music that I listened to. But again, this monotone, kanji, zaibo, sagyo, jin, this mysterious to me. And I found it intimidating. I noticed at other centers that I've practiced that sometimes there's a willingness to explore this as part of your practice, but a little push is needed. For so many of us, we're already experiencing and exploring so much when we come to Oan. How is our posture? How is our breathing? 
What are we doing when we sit around and share the tea table? That taking on one more thing like chanting can seem a little bit too much. We're already so busy. So consider this morning's talk a gentle push to maybe, if you feel so inclined, explore chanting as part of your practice. I mentioned a moment ago that something that is sometimes a barrier or an obstacle to chanting is just how unfamiliar it is and you don't know what it is that your chanting means. We often try to understand what is the meaning of the sutra, Coben says, what the sutra is teaching us, to interpret what the sound means, how the sounds are asking us to understand their meaning. When we study the sutra, we often forget the space. We often forget the space that holds the characters. So naturally in communicating with each word, we completely lose ourselves in each character of the sutra and the sutra becomes a dictionary or a vocabulary list or something that you would create flashcards to put in a box about. And I think it's natural to approach some of the sutras we chant in this way, especially for us who I assume were not raised Buddhist and who do not speak Japanese or Chinese or Pali or Sanskrit. We who really want to know things, want to do things right and to do them in the correct way. We who are terrified of making mistakes and of not being able to explain on demand something completely and thoroughly. At some point, Georgie, who is conveniently not here today, will be trained to serve as Doan. It seems that whenever I prepare a talk and I put someone from the Sangha in the talk, they're not there when I give the talk. People seem to know, and they just disappear. Oh no, Tyson's going to talk about me on Sunday. I better, like, go to the lake. And if I recall this conversation that Georgie and I had correctly, she shared some concerns about serving in that position. And these weren't concerns about missing a bell or two during Sunday service. It happens to all of us. But she was concerned about some of the names that would be recited during what we call the eco. This is the point in the service when we dedicate the merit of what it is that we've just chanted. She said to me, who is Shogaku Shunryu? Who's Hozan Koei? Tengai Bunryu? And so on. I want to know if I'm going to say their names. I'm paraphrasing here, but it's pretty close. Maybe you share this concern, um, or better yet, this curiosity. Who are these people that when the doan strikes the small bell, we bow with our hands in gasho, 
Or if you're the doshi, you prostrate yourself on the haishiki, the bowing mat, and you raise your hands above your ears until the doan strikes the small bell again. It can sometimes feel like an eternity. Why are we doing this? What is the meaning, the significance of this gesture? Shogaku Shunryu is Suzuki Roshi, a name that if you've been around a little while, you've probably heard, or if you read anything on Zen in America, you've probably come across. He is the founder of the San Francisco Zen Center, and he's important for us because he asked for Coben by name when Coben was at Eiheiji, this big monastery in Japan. Some people from San Francisco Zen Center went over to practice there. They wanted the authentic experience. Coben realizing these people were completely out of their own situation, tried to help them as best they could, and they go back and Suzuki asks for Coben to come to America. He helped bring Coben to the States. Tengai Bunryu was Coben's biological father. Hozan Koe was Coben's adoptive father. Without all of these individuals and so many others, countless others, it seems unlikely that we would have had Coben. At least we would not have had the Coben we had when we had Coben. He might have still ended up here, but it might have been a different version of him. So sometimes knowing this sort of thing is helpful. Knowing the names in the lineage, who the sounds refer to, and their relation to Hoan Coben, our root teacher. As for the meaning of the gesture, the significance of bowing when the names are recited by the doan, I'm inclined to give the question to you. What meaning do you find in that part of the service? Is it significant to you in some way? Or do you find yourself just going through the motion because everybody else is doing it? If it is significant, then why? I can tell you why it is that I find that gesture meaningful, but just because you know why I find it meaningful doesn't make it meaningful to you. Roshi often says that we should find the meaning for ourselves in bowing. So what arises for you when you bow? And the same is the case for chanting. What arises for you when you chant, when you recite a sutra? What feelings are present? Chanting is, among other things, an opportunity to turn the light around to shine within. What's going on here? Not so much what's going on on this page. Sometimes it's not so clear that learning the meaning of the words or the sounds is helpful. At least that's been my experience. There's a chant that's common in many Zen centers and temples 
called the Enmei Juku Kanan Gyo. In English, we call this the Ten Phrase Life Prolonging Sutra. And it goes like this. Kanze yon namu butsu yo butsu u en yo butsu u en bu poso en jo rakugajo chonen kanze yon bonen kanze yon nen nen jushin ki nen nen furishin. And you hear this and you think, what did you just say? It sounded nice. You could bob your head along to it. Maybe it's got a great beat, but what does this mean? Would you like to hear the English translation? Okay. No response from the audience. You're like my students when I used to teach. Here's an English translation of the ten phrase life prolonging sutra. Kanzeon, at one with Buddha, directly Buddha, also indirectly Buddha, and indirectly Buddha Dharma Sangha, joyful, pure, eternal being. Morning mind is Kanzeon, evening mind is Kanzeon. Nen-nen arises from mind, nen-nen is not separate from mind. There you go. How does hearing an English translation of this sutra affect you? Does it dispel some mystery about what it is that I said maybe 30 seconds ago? Or does it invite more questions? Like who translated this? And is there a better translation available? Sometimes it's said that the meaning is not in the words, but it responds to the inquiring impulse. So I thought I would offer you another way of approaching a sutra and the chanting of a sutra and this one focuses on the voice, and it focuses on your voice in particular. Here's what Coben has to say. The voice is very important when we chant, because the sound of our voice is the sound of our mind. Because the sound of our voice is the sound of our mind. So when you hear the voice of sutra chanting, you understand what kind of mind makes this sound. The important thing in chanting is just the doing and expressing of your momentary life. Each word basically has no meaning, but what is expressed in your whole life in each word and sound. And this is a little bit different from the way in which you might ordinarily approach a sutra or any kind of religious text for that matter. Instead of treating it as a dictionary or a vocabulary list or a set of flashcards, or instead of consulting some commentary, and there are many on the Heart Sutra in our library out there, we're offered the opportunity to explore what is here, right now. When we do that and express it, we co-create a specific meaning of this specific instance 
of chanting the sutra. So where were you this morning when you opened to page four? What was going on with you as you looked at the Romanized letters of the Japanese characters and started to say, kanji zaibo sa gyojin hanyahara, and so on. What were you expressing in that moment? I really appreciate Coben's observation that the sound of our voice is the sound of our mind. I think we understand this in some sense when we encounter someone who's angry or sad. We can tell how someone is by the tone of their voice and the way in which they deliver words or sounds. And these things, setting to one side for a moment what it is that the person says, all on their own reveal a lot about the sound of someone's mind. But there's a way of understanding what Coben has to say that makes it sound like this is intentional on the part of the speaker or deliberate on the part of the speaker. And I don't think this is quite what Coben's pointing to. It reminded me of a conversation that we had last week around the tea table. At some point in our conversation, Things turn to the use of profanity and cursing when you're having a heated discussion or you're angry with someone and whether or not it's appropriate. And there were a few comments along the following lines of, well, I really don't like to swear and I don't like to curse and I don't like to use that kind of language, but sometimes I feel I need to. Sometimes this is the way I really let somebody know that I'm not happy. This is how I show them my anger. This is how I convey to them just what it is that's going on inside of me. It's a calculated decision. And then the words come out. Whether or not it's a really conscious calculation, there's a lot of reflection that goes into it, doesn't matter. The way in which this is presented is, boom, I'm gonna use it now to convey how it is that I am in this moment. Here we go. And that's not what I think Coben has in mind here. What I think he has in mind is the way in which quite independently of what we may consciously choose or intend to do, the sound of our mind reveals itself all on its own in the sound of our voice. So some weeks ago, I was talking with Roshi about something very much alive in my practice. It's not alive all the time, but it's alive in certain moments and it had been happening for a while and I thought I need to talk to my teacher about this. And as we explored it together, my voice began to quiver. My voice began to shake all on its own. And I realized just by listening by attending to my present direct experience, that I was quite afraid, that I was very afraid, in fact, 
of what it was that I was experiencing from time to time. This wasn't consciously chosen. It wasn't deliberate. It wasn't intentional. I wasn't doing anything to make my voice start quivering and shaking, save sitting fearlessly with the fear that was present in that moment and making no attempt to cover it up. I sat and I expressed my life as it was, sitting across from Roshi. And this is what Coben encourages us to do when we chant. It's not a performance for somebody else, but an opportunity for the entire universe in the 10 directions to find a channel. From the center of our very body, it appears. There's something else that I want to invite into our discussion. Here's another passage from Coben again. When we chant, we make the sutra alive, make all the words alive. It's like comparing a scenario with the actual drama, a musical note with the actual performance. We try to play music depending on the notes, to perform a drama depending on the scenario, to cook food depending on the recipe. These efforts are aimed at approaching the original form where the original experience exists. Here's another question for you this morning. Where is the original form of the sutra? Is it in the sutra book? Is it on a chant card, like the ones we use during Orioki? I'm not inclined to think so. Not any more than I'm inclined to think that the original form of box violin sonatas are found in the musical scores you can view online or purchase in your local music shop. The original form of the drama, it seems to me, is probably not in the script, nor the dish in the recipe. So where is it? Where is this original experience? It's a kind of koan that you could work with. But if that's not your speed this morning, then here's something else. I mentioned a little while ago and have said a couple times now that we can treat the sutra as though it's a dictionary and we can lose sight of the space that holds the characters. Perhaps then we can see chanting as an opportunity to enter into that space and as Coben says, complete the situation. What does he mean by this? Complete the situation. When we chant, we give life to a well-polished arrangement of sounds, words, spells, and so forth. 
an arrangement that has been received and practiced, recited, chanted by thousands, millions of voices. We don't know how many beings have understood this sutra, Coben says. Yet all of our ancestors are present when we chant. Their effort, their dedication, their practice has allowed the sutra to be received by us, to be chanted by us, and the opportunity has arisen for us to take our place in that long lineage. We too now have the opportunity to help sustain and maintain the sutra, express our gratitude for their practice when we chant. Each of our voices can become a very, very important element in the life of the sutra. And as this came to mind, I did as I often do, I got overwhelmed. I was like, oh my goodness, that sounds like a really huge task. And then I saw Coben say that actually to do this, no effort is needed. He invites us to think about when we have a bad stomach ache. You might begin to moan but you don't have to make any sort of effort to make a nice moan. It just happens. It's not a very good one because I'm trying too hard, but if I actually had a stomach ache, you would know how it sounds. So you take your place, giving life to the sutra, and complete the situation by just doing simultaneously the utterly special and yet completely ordinary thing of expressing your life. The whole of your life, just as it is in each moment, with each word, in each sound. Might be something you want to explore this week and in the future. This whole time, I have been supposedly talking about chanting. But it occurred to me that really I'm talking about the whole of our practice and our life. What else is there for us to do but to take our place? Wherever that may be, in each moment, and express fully our life as it is in that place. And why is there at times a tendency to make the doing of that so complicated? It reminded me of conversations that seem to be all the rage at a certain time about authenticity. There might have been a week or two here where like every other word we said was authentic. And there were advice columns and talk shows and podcasts and books about how to be your authentic self. I think I saw some of them in the self-help section at Webster's the other day. And I guess I just want to say a few things about that. You are always your authentic self. And you cannot fail to be. And that includes even those moments when you might feel as though you are not your authentic self. 
in those moments, wholeheartedly feeling that you're not inauthentic is precisely the way in which you effortlessly express your authenticity in that moment. This is where I am. This is who I am. In a sense, it's not a difficult thing. If you walk through your kitchen and you happen to stub your toe on a cabinet and then you start hobbling or limping, groaning, mumbling, seemingly unseemingly language under your breath, you completely express your life in that moment just as it is. I did this the other day. That was my life. With the busted toenail and all. In another sense, though, I find this a very difficult thing to do because there's such a strong tendency to analyze and conceptualize everything, even by those of us that might not style ourselves as the kind of people who engage in that sort of behavior. Simply put, we're very, very good at getting in our own way. Or maybe just I am. I don't know. And part of why this seems to happen is what we might call the newness of something in our life or the strangeness of something when it appears for the first time on the horizon. We start to wonder, what is that thing in relation to me? This strange arrangement of words and phrases on a piece of paper. And what am I in relation to it? Am I the kind of person that wants to chant this thing? To do this practice? Or am I not not that? Because it's fill in the blank. Coben says that after a while, the habit that gets activated by really anything that seems at first glance, outside or foreign or new or strange or different to us, eventually disappears or goes to sleep. And I find that comforting. Because it helps me remember that it's not so important to understand. But it is very important to have confidence, to practice, and to just keep going. Thank you.